0: Unabashed. The most unpredictable. Becomes a headline. The most volatile. Outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities.
1: Welcome to Grant Masha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Veshnov. The Biden administration has been in office for just a little over two months, but India has already emerged as an important foreign policy priority for the president and his new team. But what do the United States and India actually seek to do together? What is the significance of this month's leadership-level Quad Summit? And at a time when democracy is under stress globally, how are these two democracies managing their own domestic challenges at home? To discuss these questions and much, much more, I am honored to welcome the Indian Ambassador to the United States, Tharanjit Singh Sandhu, to the podcast. There are few people in the Indian government who have more experience living and working in the United States than Ambassador Sandhu. He last served in Washington as the Deputy Chief of Mission from 2013 to 2017. This is if our listeners can believe it or not the ambassador's very first podcast conversation and we are delighted that he has chosen to take the plunge with us so ambassador welcome to the show thank you milan thank you so if i'm not mistaken uh reading rereading i should say your bio this is your not first second but third tour of duty as a diplomat representing india in the united states you were first posted here back in 1997 when relations between our two countries, I think it's fair to say, looked quite different. If we could begin just by kind of asking you in your own words, could you reflect on how US India relations have evolved since your first tour in Washington back in the late
0: 1990s? Milan, of course, uh, things have changed. For example, in the 90s, Milan was not there. In 2013, Milan was a young think tanker, and in 2020, (laughs) Milan is the popular grand Tamasha host. But on a serious note, (laughs) while many things have changed, many things have also remained the same. No doubt, we have traveled a long way. Each time has been interesting, new challenges, and the relationship has emerged bigger and better each time. You know, i can look back in the 90s the pokhran tests the sanctions to the historic clinton visit and i still remember discussing with some of the people who were on clinton's team then and now they occupy important positions including in think tanks the first time in the modern period i recall the people's touch and you will recall the jeepot then of course presidents George W., Obama has been twice, including Republic day chief guest, then, of course, President Trump, to the current excitement with President Biden. You know, President, candidate Biden has commented on India in August and October last year. Not to forget, of course, the challenge, the so-called diplomat crisis challenge in 2013. Then Prime Minister Modi's four visits during my time, during a... Obama administration, the first 2014, the Madison Square Garden event, where many leaders were on the stage, including Leader Schumer, Chairman Menendez, so many others, to 2015 San Jose on the West Coast, the Diaspora Stadium event, with Speaker Nancy Pelosi and many others on the stage. Of course, that visit had the focus on clean energy and IT, which is so relevant even today. Then 2016, the nuclear summit with President Obama. And finally, the historic 2016 September visit, the joint session of Congress. You were here in D.C. too. So it's been a gradual movement. Another way to look, our energy and defense trade numbers in the late 90s, non-existent, zero. Look at the numbers today, over $20 billion each. In U.S. is today the second largest supplier of energy to india in the trade you know from prime minister modi's addressing the us congress to joint strategic vision in the indo pacific to the first quad leader summit study development three perspectives increase in strategic convergence increase in the trust on both sides shared objectives common challenges and we are collaborating in all fields of human activity huge canvas becoming broader and deeper day by day. And what has not changed? The relationship remains people-centric, people-driven, then and now, beyond just governments, the connect between the industry, academics, civil society, people on both sides. That's how it has been possible to travel thus far.
1: So I'm glad that you mentioned the this month's Quad summit, because you know, here we were watching representatives of the so-called four Quad countries meet virtually uh, for the first time at the leadership level. You know, there is a common belief that many analysts hold that India has been somewhat cautious or skeptical about engaging with the Quad in the past, but. This time around, we saw not only a high-profile summit uh, at the leadership level, but this unprecedented Washington Post op-ed penned by Prime Minister Modi and his three counterparts, clearly signaling a new po- a new posture. What, in your mind, has changed about how India kind of looks at this particular grouping?
0: Bill and As I mentioned to you, even in the initial comments, it's been a gradual development, but. You are absolutely right. The Quad Summit, first multilateral engagement at the heads of state government level under the new administration. Now, this, of course, shows the priority accorded by the Quad, that is, India, US, Japan, Australia, to the Quad. And the OPED, which you mentioned, absolutely. It further signals the convergence of the views amongst the four countries and the commitment to work together on priority areas that require pulling in of resources. Now, if you look back in history, how did Quad emerge? You know, the unprecedented humanitarian disaster in 2004, when four countries came together for HADR efforts. Today, again, we are confronted with challenges of great magnitude, like COVID. It's a great risk to health, human life, and economic stability. And as large democracies, pluralistic societies, market economies, there is a need for practical solutions based on our working together, bringing in our respective strengths. So this quad had very clear, three concrete, practical, and focused initiatives. You know, the quad vaccine initiative, which is unique. Now, interestingly, this relies on India's manufacturing capability, technology from the United States, finance from Japan, and logistics from Australia, if I can put it in a very simple uh, language. So it's concrete and positive outcome. Similarly, we have two others, climate change and emerging technology. And, you know, there are two other working groups that have been established. So what I would say is, of course, a lot has changed. India's relationship with the United States has transformed, as has its relationship with Japan and Australia. And that provides a firm footing for the Quad. And as Prime Minister Modi himself said, Quad is a force for common good. You
1: know, one of the countries which we haven't yet mentioned by name and and didn't actually come up a lot during the Quad Summit, of course, is China. Um, But China's actions do uh, figure into the backdrop against which the Quad Summit took place. Uh, As you know better than I now, for many, many months, India has been engaged in a very tense standoff with China along the line of actual control. Uh, This is the latest in a series of escalating disputes with one of India's biggest and most consequential neighbors. In the position that you sit in today, do you think the United States and India enjoy a shared worldview in terms of how they understand a rising China?
0: See, Milan, China is our immediate neighbor. It's a rising power. But India, too, is a rising power. For decades, there has been a compartmentalized approach, if I can say, where the boundary dispute with China was in one basket and the rest of the relationship was in another one. But recent provocative behavior of China, the incidents of June 2020 when 20 Indian soldiers lost their lives, first time in decades there was loss of life, on the border. Now, our diplomatic and military sides have been engaged in negotiations since then to resolve to de escalate along the line of actual control. There has been some progress in the last month, as you would have heard. There is disengagement, which is happening in one sector. The dialogue is continuing, mutually acceptable solution for complete disengagement at all friction points at the earliest. That is in the works, the exchange is going on, but what is important is restoration of peace and tranquility on the border areas is important for overall development of relations. We certainly desire peace on our borders and India's leadership and troops have clearly shown that they can stand up when challenged. And with regard to China, let me quote Dr. Jay Shankar, you know, on the relationship He mentioned it should be based on three mutuals mutual respect, mutual sensitivity, and mutual interest. Now, coming to your second part, the India US, you know, that is on its own footing. I would say this should not be viewed through a country lens, another country lens. But look, the COVID has certainly added another dimension the vulnerability of the supply chains, the need to build domestic capacity, as well as engage friends who are reliable in similar situations and discussions. You know, earlier on, we turned this challenge into an opportunity. We enhanced, that is, India enhanced its capacities to test and treat, manufacture, later even export PPEs, including essential medicines, equipments, during the peak of the crisis. And similar conversations were going on within the United States too. All the countries have realized that need to work together while strengthening their own capacities depending on their own national priorities. For India, amongst the priorities are strengthening our manufacturing base to create jobs and economic growth. You know, the government is undertaking many reforms for that. For example, PLI schemes, 13 sectors. And of course, there has been growing convergence between India and the United States. In our vision of a free, open, and inclusive Indo-Pacific, again, based on rule of law and peaceful settlement of disputes, we are, that is India today, is a maritime power in the Indian Ocean region. We have close relations with our maritime neighbors, and that includes ASEAN countries. Our vision of Indo-Pacific has highlighted the centrality of ASEAN. And we find there is convergence with the United States on this, there is increasing scope of cooperation in different areas, and the most recent example of that which we spoke about is the recent Portsmith so therefore, there are many complementarities and opportunities for both our countries to work together
1: I want to ask you about another uh... Some might say sensitive issue, which is the state of democracy back home. You know, we have seen two recent global reports, one by Freedom House, one by the VDEM Institute of Sweden, that have been quite critical about the trajectory of democracy in India. Both reports have downgraded India's status. These very same reports, I should point out to our listeners, have had extremely sharp and critical words for American democracy uh, as well in terms of the challenges that we've gone through over the past several years. I guess my question to you is, to what extent should governments in our two countries as well as citizens in the United States and in India be having candid conversations about each other's domestic challenges?
0: I'm glad you have asked this question. Now, let's look at the reality. India is the largest democracy in the world. We have a robust constitutional framework. And there are guarantees of freedom inbuilt into that framework. Independent judiciary, courts, robust media, freedom of expression. Look, time and again, commentators have raised questions about democracy in India. From the 50s. But we have not only survived but thrived and prospered as a democracy. As the most diverse and pluralistic society in the world, democracy is the only way to govern a country as complex as India. And we have our own distinct traditions of democracy. There is no one model of democracy. Remember, it's 1.3 billion people who participate in a democratic process. And look at the way Indians are conscious of their voting rights. Voter turnouts in Indian elections, you look at the way elections have happened in the past. And look at it, how they are happening even now. Switch on Indian TV channel and you will see the robust and a mature democracy, intense and lively elections are part of Indian ethos. No one can deny that India is a mature democracy. India and United States are open societies and free exchange of ideas and thoughts is fundamental to how the relationship has evolved. The people who drive this relationship, whether the diaspora, the business community, or interest groups, are always talking to each other. All kinds of conversations are happening, like you and me just now. And while there may be diversity or differences in approaches, there are shared values which draw people together. This is why India and United States are referred to as natural partners. There is natural affinity, natural connection, which draws our people together. As societies, we are evolving and adapting to a fast-changing world. Consequently, our democracies are also evolving to meet the challenges of today. You can see it even here. The frames of reference, which you have alluded to, are intellectual tools which try to measure democracy in abstract terms. These might be of use to researchers in universities or think tanks who study democracy as an intellectual problem. These frames, too, need to evolve with fast-changing times. But ultimately, in a democracy, it is the people It is the people who will decide and judge the success or failure of any government policy or decision, just as it is the people who are the drivers of our partnership. And I have tremendous faith in the power of the people. You
1: know, I think as we were anticipating the beginning of a Biden-Harris administration, there were analysts both in India and the United States who were kind of thinking about you know, what shape U.S.-India relations might take under a new administration. I think it's fair to say that on many uh, important indicators, the U.S.-India relations actually did quite well under Donald Trump. Um, And so it was a bit of a question mark, you know, how the two countries would navigate this transition. So people are sort of trying to read the tea leaves to kind of discern, you know, where this relationship could go. As you look out at the landscape, thinking both about common challenges as well as opportunities you know what is your hope for how the two countries might work together you know if you if you think about the kind of next 4 years as your kind of horizon
0: i think there is a huge potential here milan i can clearly lay out five baskets for you in which there is immediate priority on both sides and all these five baskets not only have bilateral and global relevance, but also domestic relevance. And these are, I would run them along. Firstly, we have already spoken about the strategic partnership, the Indo-Pacific, the defense. Then there is cooperation in the health sector, the healthcare. And in the healthcare, there is affordable medicines, affordable vaccines, not only in third countries, which. We have spoken about, but do keep in mind that India is today exporting vaccines to actually giving out vaccines to almost 70 countries. And this includes all the regions, not only South Asia, Asia, uh, Indo-Pacific, Latin America, you know, both your neighbors, Mexico, Canada, Africa, 30 countries. I can tell you in my conversations with the u s Senators and congressmen, there is a lot of interest in this, so that's one area, but there is also complementarity in what I mentioned to you in PPEs, in other affordable medicines and other affordable vaccines you know for not only global health but also domestic health uh, health care in both the countries. So there is huge potential here then of course, climate change. And clean energy, here again, this basket, right now, there is intense cooperation going on. But you know that India is having one of the biggest uh, renewable energy programs, which includes solar. And in solar, battery technology is very important. And the United States has a certain leadership. They are looking for a market there. Again, just to give you one example. And then there is what I would call is IT digital basket look today the grand tamasha has to be done through the digital mechanism and we are seeing as i mentioned to you that the the post covid and actually even covid world things have changed and digital is playing a very important role not only digital medicine digital education but even in what are we talking about the frontiers of technology and that's why you see in the quad there is one aspect in which there is a working group on the digital IT side. And and I'm quickly running through this. Finally, the knowledge partnership and education. You know, I have spoken to almost 75 universities across the United States, and there is a lot of excitement to have innovative mechanism of campus-to-campus relations, of Indian students, and also in terms of even school education and other skilling etc and this we can also expand our partnership to many other areas including africa where india already has a presence it's training almost 20 countries in it related services so just to give you that there is so much of potential on both sides but as you would see that you know quad was one but Biden administration has taken, and they are committed to deepening engagement in all these different areas. And in the case of Quad, you, are, you have already seen that there's a focus on clear three areas. And COVID challenge has ensured that there is immediate priority on both countries. And as I mentioned to you, that in the case of health, You may be aware about four years ago, United States and India collaborated on another vaccine, rotavirus vaccine. And from $60, the price came down to $1. So what I'm mentioning to you is that in affordable healthcare, again, there's a huge scope. During the top of the crisis, you know, Philadelphia approached us. We ensured, facilitated 2 million masks. So there are a lot of areas in the immediate context in which we can work together. And I've mentioned all these already to you. In the education side, you would certainly know that we have about 200,000 Indian students here, and most of them are in the areas of uh, STEM. So they bring value, they bring a lot of collaboration to both our countries. And I think that there is a strong possibility in the Biden administration that we will deepen our collaboration and in the immediate context, of course, in the long-term too. You know, thus
1: far in our conversation, we've been focused on uh, the actions and priorities of the executive branch in the United States. But of course, policymaking in the United States is, is very fragmented. You know, the executive branch is considered to hold the reins on foreign policy. But Congress, of course, has a voice. It's an independent branch of government. It has its own views, its own powers. In recent months, we have seen members of Congress across the two parties issue statements on a range of issues. Uh, It could be on India's human rights record. It could be on India's purchase of the S-400 missile system from Russia. It could be on domestic trade barriers enacted in India. As ambassador, how do you navigate the multiple players involved in U.S. foreign policy making, right? Because when you talk about government-to-government relations, it's not just you calling up your counterpart at the State Department or the White House. It's the, the 535 people who sit on Capitol Hill as well.
0: See, Ilan, in the earlier people used to say a good diplomat never sits in office. You know, he or she is supposed to go out, meet people, make friends, do whatever it takes promote the interests of the country. Now, COVID changed it all. No physical meetings, no personal connect. Well, I was lucky. Had old contacts, friends. I've, of course, tried to make new friends using digital platforms. But as you know, it's not that easy. But we have all adapted. Now, coming to your question, you know, the India-US partnership has many stakeholders. The administration, the US Congress, the business community, think tanks like Armigui. And of course, the strongest bond, which is, as I told you earlier, between people of the two countries. As a professional diplomat, it's my job to be engaged with all the stakeholders. Now, the US Congress has played a special role in developing and fostering the India-US partnership in the last two decades. As you mentioned, way back in the late 90s, I was a congressional officer. I started my career there. And, you know, I have actually walked around the corridors of U.S. Congress just after the 1998 nuclear blast. Of course, we have limited time. I would love to tell you so many stories about that. But we appreciate the importance and the value of two co-equal branches of government in the United States. But I also want to point out here, you have missed one very important level that is ignored by a lot of analysts. There are governors and states. Now, you know, in the last one year, Mm -hmm. I've engaged more than 25 governors. And I can assure you that I have engaged across the board, U.S. senators and congressmen. Many of them I have known from 97. Many of those congressmen have become senators today. And we have the beautiful part about our relationship is that we can sit across and we can talk so while you may have mentioned highlighted some aspects i can tell you that there are so many other aspects many of the similar people same people have written on that which sometimes the media ignores but it's a robust relationship it goes across and india us partnership i can tell you across from 97 onwards has enjoyed bipartisan support over the years and i think uh, Currently, you are again seeing a reflection of that. Regardless of political dispensation, there is recognition and appreciation for the promise of India-U.S. relationship and the need for it to grow. And this also helps in engaging different stakeholders in the relationship. You know, the bipartisan support and the nature of the relationship certainly helps us to navigate the different players in the relationship. And today, as I mentioned, our relationship is comprehensive global strategic partnership, covering all aspects of human endeavor. You know, in science and technology, there is so much happening, which many people even don't realize. So that's why different actors, multiple players, but ultimately, as I mentioned to you, the relationship is driven by people-to-people ties, and the relationship will grow if the people continue to drive.
1: So before I kind of ask you a follow up on people to people, let me ask you just about one of the aspects of, of connectivity between the United States and India, and that has to do with the bilateral economic relationship. You know, if you were to go back and read some of those joint statements, which you as as DCM uh, carefully negotiated, there were sort of a standard set of talking points or aspirations on both sides. So you would see things like, uh, the promise of a U.S.-India BIT a bilateral investment treaty, or a, a language encouraging India's entry into the regional organization APEC. You know, as you evolve throughout the years and more recent times, you know some of these standard items seem to have dropped off of the agenda. There is a perception that, on the one hand, strategic cooperation has proceeded very well. But on the other, economic ties, in terms of the two governments, not in terms of private sector flows, but in terms of the two governments and what they can do, those have waned. Do you think that this is a correct perception? And you know, what are your priorities as you look forward in terms of the economic side of the house?
0: See, Milan, our priorities have evolved over time. That is certainly very fair. But it is not fair to say that our economic relationship has weakened. You know, today we are talking about FTA shows how far we have come. And I totally agree with you, potential to do much more is there. But let us also factually look at the situation. You know, over the past few years, the economic and financial ties between our two countries has improved. Now, as far as investments are concerned, you know, the stock of FDI from India to U.S. and vice versa has increased more than 38% over the past four years, The U.S. has emerged as a second biggest source of FDI into India during the first half of current financial year, 2020-21. The U.S. investors have infused $7.2 billion of FDI between April and September of 2020. The U.S. Development Finance Corporation has recently invested in development of critical infrastructure projects in India. So, what I'm saying is that all this shows that there is good confidence between U.S. government and the investor community in India. And when you say that the private sector is separate, the private sector has always been an important driver in both our economies. So I would say that, look, there is a new USTR who has taken position. There's a new commerce secretary. I can tell you that Conversations are happening between them very, very early. You will hear something very soon. And there is certain excitement. I have been in touch with a number of uh, chambers. I've spoken in the, in fact, last 10 days itself. And I can tell you there is a lot of positivity. And in infrastructure, health, energy, education, digital economy, fine tech, these are some areas that, hold immense opportunity for cooperation between India and the US. And I've also already touched upon, you know, renewables, solar, etc. So, I would say that certainly hold your breath. Things are moving in the right direction. Our figures are huge when I compare them from 97, when I started here. And in coming days, our leaderships will engage. But the very fact that there are challenges shows to you that it's a robust relationship, because it's only when you will have a robust relationship, there will be differences on certain trade matters, and those will be discussed over.
1: So I want to come back to this issue of people to people, right? And I think it's... Um... Fair to say that the bedrock of people to people ties between the two countries is the Indian diaspora you know, according to the us census, there are about four million four point two million people of Indian origin residing in the united states that 's two thousand and eighteen number it 's probably much higher than that now uh, around two and a half million are us citizens um, people like myself uh, you know born here or may have come here from India and naturalized the Modi government. Has made the diaspora a cornerstone of its foreign policy approach, right? I think we all recall 2019's Howdy Modi event in my hometown, Houston, Texas, right? It's a good example of this. I think a lot of people stop and ask, and you see this in India as well as in the United States, you know, what are the motivations behind this kind of research, uh, this kind of outreach, right? I mean, how do you take stock of what this outreach the diaspora actually delivers in terms of concrete outcomes
0: milan in my opening remarks uh you know you have only mentioned 2019 i took you back (laughs) to a number of and i brought you back even to president shinton's that beautiful visit and the Jaipur photographs which we all saw right but you know Look, on the serious side, the Indian-American diaspora is an important bridge between our two countries. And as I mentioned, it's a people-to-people ties that have driven our relationship. Uh, Look, we take great pride in achievements of our Indian diaspora and also of the Indian people. And when I say people-to-people relationship, you just look at it, you know. I mean, you are an international affairs expert. And you know my region very well. Let me give you an example. In India, the United States has not had to sink any billions of dollars. You have sunk in a neighborhood. But from President Clinton's time downwards, an Indian president, go, uh, US president goes to India, people come out in thousands. I think that's the people to people strength, that United States and India, are seen in positive terms. Now, coming back to the Indian diaspora here, all the presidents across have taken pride in that. Look at President Biden's comments on August 15. Look at his editorial in October. And subsequently, I think everybody takes pride in that. Of course, there's a natural connect with the country of your birth, parents, and you want that connection to thrive. We also want the diaspora to be a partner in India's growth and development, which is an important engine for world economic growth. And diaspora is in a unique position to capitalize on it. This aspect also must be kept in mind. And it's very encouraging to see Indian Americans occupy prominent positions in various walks of life, whether it is administration, Congress, think tanks, businesses, CEOs. They come from diverse walks of life, trace their roots to different parts of India. But at the same time, there is a growing number of Indians living and working abroad, which also includes United States. There's also Indian students, as I mentioned to you, uh, 200,000 of them. Now, their safety, security, and welfare and well-being is also a responsibility of the Indian embassies abroad. Now the growing profile and visibility of Indians has enhanced the responsibilities of the government of India. The government has an active and engaged diaspora policy, not just for United States, but also for rest of the world where Indians are present. And we remain engaged and responsive to the needs of all our diaspora. Now let me give you an example. During the peak of the COVID crisis, Now we organized the largest evacuation exercise and enabled travel of thousands of standard Indians and Indian origin people back to India. In the United States itself, more than 800 flights were organized by Air India and nearly 170,000 passengers were taken. I will also give you the example of our Embassy Students Hub during the peak of the crisis we were in touch with thousands of students helped them through the crisis and in that many members of diaspora helped us you know many of the hotels and motel owners many of the doctors provided free assistance free advice on phones the hotel owners provided rooms when students were ousted from their universities so what I'm trying to tell you is that there is a multidimensional side of that. And this aspect also has to be kept in mind. Now, in India, in Delhi itself, we have a Pravasi Bharti Kendra to, among app services for the diaspora. You know, there's Madad, which is a portal which actually actively engages the diaspora. So this has certainly become an important part of our foreign policy and our responsibility. And I will ask you to view it in this broader aspect that whenever there is a crisis, whether there are floods here, whether there are natural disasters or something happens, we always try and help the local authorities to reach out to not only Indians, but also Indian origin people. Many during this crisis wanted to travel for different reasons, wanted to see their parents. Sometimes some parents were very unwell We facilitated those uh, travels, not just for uh, cardholders, but even people who were of Indian origin. Every day I get requests that, you know, my parents are not well, I need to go immediately. We facilitate that. So that is the broader engagement, which I will refer.
1: So- I want to bring this conversation to a close, Ambassador, by asking you about the future. You know, as you mentioned a couple of different times in this conversation, the U.S. and India are cooperating on a variety of fronts, right? I mean, space exploration, combating climate change, supply chain management in the production of of PPE equipment, and so on and so forth. As you look ahead, I want to ask you kind of a two-part question. Number one, is there an area or a sector that you're especially excited or enthusiastic about that we may not be paying attention to? And number two, is there an area that you think requires a sort of redoubling uh, of an effort? So, you know, how, how do you think about these two sides of the coin as you kind of project into the future?
0: A very interesting question. You know, look, I've spoken about the five priority areas of cooperation between India and United States. Each of these, of course, are important for both our countries, and there are a number of other areas too in which we cooperate. But uh, you know, I'm most excited about what I mentioned to you is education and knowledge partnership and the youth. And why I want to again underline, you know, one of your ambassadors uh, when he was going to India uh, during my previous stint uh, had a nice conversation with me and i mentioned to him that look in delhi you will be get an exposure you will meet with so many people in delhi they keep coming to your mission but one single advice i will give you is go out of delhi go to the different universities interact with the young there and that's the real strength of india-us Nations. and i can tell you when i sit with him now many times he often mentions that to me. And I, I'm i sure you will guess the name, but I'm not going to get into it. But <laughs> this is one area, because look, there is so much of scope in education and knowledge partnership. And I wish, I'm trying my best, that we can focus in this. We, of course, have the new education policy in India. After 35 years, last December it has come, there is a lot of excitement in which we can build Campus to campus relations, even, you know, relationship between institutions, exchange of scholars, so many things like that. Because, you know, the innovation and startups, they are really driven by the young. And they are the future of our relationship. And I just want to give you one very interesting example. You know, in these COVID times, one of the very effective pharma companies in India which is manufacturing a vaccine which is not only being used in India, but there is also a collaboration in United States and already it has been filed with FDA. You know, the couple which has established that uh, setup up in India, actually both of them were educated in United States, went to India, set up this startup. In fact, what I mentioned to you about Rotavirus vaccine, which was developed along with NIH, was actually done by this couple. So there are so many examples of our young, bright minds from here, going back, doing the startups, also this side. Therefore, I do feel that knowledge partnership is one area where we should give a lot of push because the other areas, I'm sure there are lots of commercial interests and others who will take care of them. Of course, we are also pushing it.
1: My guest on the show today is Ambassador Taranjit Singh Sandhu. He is the Indian ambassador to the United States. He is a well-known figure in the corridors of power in Washington. I think it's fair to say, Ambassador, you're practically a beltway insider at this point. Uh, you've You've been around for so long in D.C., uh, it, it was a real pleasure to have this chance to sit down with you, albeit virtually and not in person. But uh, now that you have crossed the podcast threshold, I am sure your staff and your team will be uh, pushing you to do more of this. But it, it was a great honor to, to host you for the very first podcast experience. Uh, thank you for taking the time um, to discuss some of your thoughts on the U.S. and India uh, with us on the program.
0: Thank you, Milan. Uh, certainly, as a You have made me break the glass ceiling, as they say in a way. But I also want to just comment on your last comment. You know, since I've been around for long, I know this comment about insider and outsider. You know the political dimensions. So therefore, no comment. I mean, I am what I am, but I'm certainly not an insider. I'm as much perhaps an insider, maybe a little less than you, but (laughs) it was wonderful to connect with you. And uh, I hope uh, certainly to again connect up again.
1: Thank you so much. Grant is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcasting producing platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we referenced on this week's episode, visit our website, grantamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Jonathan Kay. Tim Martin is our audio engineer and Maya Krishna Rogers is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week.
0: This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast.
1: Es stieß mal